Well, thanks for joining us for part two of our new series called We Believe. Now, if you'll remember from part one, and if you haven't seen that yet, I would encourage you to go back and watch it. But in part one, we detailed not just that this is a series about what we believe as Christians, but why we believe what we believe. And and to take it even a step further, I would say not just why we believe, but why do we have good reason to believe what we believe? My name is Pastor Matt. I'm the location pastor here at the Orchard Community Church at our Live Oak location. And as we get into today's question, I want to introduce it with an excerpt from a guy who wrote about himself and what he personally believed about Jesus. And he says this, I believe that Jesus was sinless and born of the Virgin Mary. He cleansed the leprous, gave sight to the blind, and raised people from the dead. Jesus is the Messiah, the Word of God. Now, if you were born in the church or you uh, are born uh, going to church or raised by a, a Christian family, uh, maybe you, you, know, you have experiences where you weren't really going to church or, or you've just lived in an area where you've heard these things before, for, for you, these things may not sound all that different than what you believe or what you were taught to believe or maybe you personally believe. You may find it interesting, however, to find out that the man who said these things was actually at the time a devout Muslim. Jesus was sinless, virgin born, performed miracles, raised people from the dead. He's the Messiah, the word of God. That that may be shocking to you at first to realize that that was said by a Muslim because really that sounds very very much like what we believe as Christians. And in fact, I would say there's nothing in that statement that I would personally disagree with that Scripture would disagree with, but he continues and he says this, but Jesus was not God. He was just a man. This person goes on and and later clarifies and asks the question, in fact, where does Jesus say, I am God? And I think that's the point of today's message. That's the point of the question we're asking today is, okay, who is Jesus? Is Jesus really God's son? Is he the son of God living in human flesh? And as this person says, this person, by the way, is Nabil Karishi. He's the late um, apologist and Christian thinker. And these words, this account comes from his own testimony, a 300-page documentary, basically, of his journey from devout Muslim to the Christian faith titled Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. I'd encourage you, grab a copy and read it for yourself. But at this stage in his life, he's a devout Muslim. He is debating with Christians. And at this point, he says, in fact, I don't even know where Jesus ever claimed to be God. Now, if you were raised in the church or you were raised uh, much like me, where you are in a, uh, the Bible Belt South, you, you know that Jesus being the Son of God, often given to him as a title, they kind of go hand in hand. And, and maybe because of that, you take it for granted and you've never really thought, okay, well, why should I believe that? Or, or where does Jesus claim to be God? H- how can I validate if that's true or not? Or is it just simply something that separates my religion from everyone else's religion and, and really will never know the answer? Well, I think part of that is true that this claim to deity, Jesus being divine, God in flesh, is the one thing that separates Christianity from all other religions, cults, ideologies in the world. Certainly, it is a huge distinction between Islam and Christianity, also Judaism and Christianity, and also several pseudo-Christian cults that would loosely align with Christianity, yet they would all, almost all, deviate from the idea that Jesus is divine, that he is God in flesh. 
So let's just start there and let's look at that question, did Jesus ever claim to be God? And I think the question comes, and it's not the first time I've heard this question, I've heard it from someone who uh, even would claim to be Christian and says, where did Jesus claim to be God? I think the issue with this or, or the obstacle is that he doesn't necessarily come out and say, I am God. Maybe we would think it would be easier if he did or, or easier for us anyway to support this idea if he did. But there is good evidence in scripture that Jesus made these claims to deity. He claimed to be divine. And I think we'll see that in just a minute. So look with me if you have a Bible or the words will be on the screen in John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, it actually tells us that the reason the Jews began to come up with plots and schemes and devices, uh, uh, ways to trap Jesus and to have him killed is because he made claims to deity. It says in John chapter 5, verse 18, this is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him, Jesus. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was breaking the traditions, but he was even calling God his own father. And by calling God his father, they knew that he was making himself equal to God. A few chapters later in John chapter 8, the Jews replied, they're having this dialogue, this back and forth with Jesus, and they said, you aren't even 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? How can this be? Abraham died thousands of years ago, and you're saying you've seen him? You're not even 50 years old. You must be crazy. Jesus says to them, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, what's interesting about that statement is not just what Jesus said, because the I am statements are famous in John. The I am statements are claims to deity, because that's the covenant name of Yahweh that he revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. I am that I am. So Jesus, by saying I am, is equating himself with the God of Moses, the God who appeared to Moses in the Old Testament. But what's interesting is their response after Jesus says, Abraham was, I am. It says, they, the Jews, picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. Now, you might ask, what would cause a response or, or what was going on in this situation? Now, these guys weren't just picking up rocks to, to throw at Jesus because they were mad at him or they were trying to give him bruises. In those days, they were picking up rocks to stone him and to kill him. What would warrant such a response from these people? Well, that's because in the Jewish law, blasphemy was a killable offense. You could be put to death for blasphemy. And so for them, they understood quite clearly that Jesus is making a claim to deity when he says, I am. And so their response is, we are justified in having this guy stoned. We can put this guy to death because clearly he's saying that he's God. Clearly he's not. And so therefore he deserves to be put to death. Now, some people would say, well, you can't really use John's gospel. It was the last gospel written, and it was written 70 or so years after Jesus' death. And so, you know, by that time, the church was established. They knew what they believed about Jesus. They, you know, they just kind of made these things up and wrote them into John's gospel. Well, you may notice there's a different title given to Jesus. Actually, he gives it to himself more than 80 times in the gospels, and that title is Son of Man. Now, on the surface, that title doesn't seem to be a claim to deity at all. In fact, it seems quite the contrary, but you may find it interesting to know that that is actually a claim to deity. And we'll see that again in the response. Look in Matthew chapter 26, or yeah, Matthew 26, verse 62 through 66. It says, the high priest stood up and said to him, Jesus is being questioned, he's been arrested. And they asked him, don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. So the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said it, Jesus told him, but I tell you, in the future you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has blasphemed. 
Now, what in the world would you, would you say in Jesus' statement that he is uh, the son of man, seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven? What about that seems to be a claim to deity that would warrant the high priest to say he has blasphemed? And yet it's because that title, son of man, and that particular reference Jesus makes actually goes back to a vision in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision and it says this, I continued watching in the night visions and suddenly like, one or and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven he approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people nation and language should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed you see jesus knew the passage the jews who were interrogating jesus knew the passage and when he says look i am like the son of man Right, like I'm, I'm the one. I'm telling you in the future, the Son of Man, see at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. Like I'm telling you that that is me. I am the Son of Man who you read about and who you know about in Daniel seven, which led the high priest to tear his robes and say he is a blasphemer. Jesus was making a specific claim that says, "Look, I am the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. I am the one who was with the Ancient of Days. I am the one who has been given dominion and power and a kingdom forever." I am the Messiah, the one sent by God. And the Jews in that moment said, no, you're a blasphemer, and instead led him to Pilate to be crucified. So I think just in those small survey of examples, there's others, of course, in the New Testament, but just in those examples alone, I think we see that it is clear that Jesus made claims to divinity. Now, here's the issue. He could have made those claims, but were they true? So Jesus could think that he was the son of God, right? And, and he could have made those claims but not have been the son of God. And he could have known he wasn't, and that would make him a liar. Or he could have made those claims and legitimately been convinced that he was the son of God, but he wasn't. That would make him a lunatic or crazy. Or he could have made claims to deity. He could have made claims to be divine and actually have been divine, and that would make him Lord. This is a famous argument made by C.S. Lewis titled liar lunatic or lord and so what is their evidence is there evidence in scripture okay we see jesus definitely made these claims but is there evidence that supports jesus claiming to be divine that would you know support this idea that he actually is different than any other human being he's not just a man living on the earth well, I think there's one particular instance there's one particular event in the life of jesus that if true certainly underscores the idea that Jesus is divine. And that is the resurrection. You see, even Nabil as a devout Muslim in the very beginning, that story, he, he had no problem with Jesus' miracles. He had no problem with Jesus being the Messiah. He had no problem with this idea of Jesus being a prophet, but the idea that someone could predict their own death and three days later predict their resurrection, that is something that no man could do. And so Jesus in his resurrection, I think, is going to lean us to the idea that, yes, absolutely, Jesus, we have good reason to believe Jesus was resurrected. And because of that, we have good reason to believe that Jesus is indeed divine. Now, look with me real fast in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says this, Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
For I passed on to you as most important what I also received. Here's what it is, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now here the apostle Paul says, when I came to you, Corinthians, I came to you and I bore this gospel message. The gospel in a nutshell is this, that Jesus died for our sins to atone for our sins. He was buried and that three days later he was raised. Paul says, I passed that on to you, but then he goes a step further and says, not only did Jesus rise from the grave, not only was he resurrected, but verse five, he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter. Then he appeared to the 12, the disciples. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters, not individually, but at one time, most of them are still alive, but some had fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, his half-brother, then to the apostles, and verse 8, last of all, as the one born at the wrong time, he appeared also to me. Now here is evidence here in Paul's argument. The evidence for the resurrection is simply this. There are eyewitnesses. There are people who saw Jesus after he was resurrected. And he lists them, some of them by name. He says, Peter, and he says, James. He says, the 12 disciples, all of them well-documented by name. And he says, look, also, as if all of that wasn't enough, he appeared to 500 people, not individually, but at one time. The odds of 500 people having the exact same hallucination at one time is, is psychologically and scientifically virtually impossible. And so then he says, not only that, he appeared to his half-brother James, again, by name, calling him James. And then he says, last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared to me. I think the significance of Paul listing these people by name and listing the idea that many of these people are still alive is, is Paul is not at all shying away from being asked questions about his faith or the reason why he believed in the resurrection. In fact, it's almost like he's challenging those questions. He says, look, if you don't believe in the resurrection or if you're not sure that the gospel that we preach built on the resurrection is true, then hey, why don't you go ask Peter? Why don't you go ask one of the disciples? Why don't you go ask many of these people who are still alive today and ask Ask them firsthand, what did they see? You see, Paul, he, he anticipated the questions and, and he made himself available to the questioning. Why? Because he was confident that the questions could be answered in favor of the resurrection. But that's not all. So you have the eyewitness account, but you also have the changed lives of the apostles. We don't have time to get into all of them, but it's pretty well documented in history through non-biblical, extra-biblical sources that the apostles, the disciples, almost all of them died a martyr's death for the faith. And it's been said that liars make poor martyrs. Why is that? Because if these men, these disciples had have made the resurrection story up, if they had done something, plotted some way to, to make it feasible for people to believe in the resurrection, it seems virtually impossible that all of them having the gun to their head, so to speak, having been tied to the stake, ha having been threatened with their own lives being taken, that we have no documentation that any of them ever recanted from the faith. How easy would it have been for them if they had made up the story for one of them to say, you know what, I value my life more than I value the, the prestige of being you know, known as a follower of Jesus. And, and you know, we made the whole story up. We lied about the resurrection, but you know, I, I just hold so closely to that that I'm willing to give up my life for it. It seems very unlikely that not one disciple who claimed to believe in the resurrection would have recanted the faith if they had just made the story up. It's liars make poor martyrs. Why? Because we value our lives. It's ironic, however, also, if you talk about those whose lives were changed 
that the person who wrote 1 Corinthians was the Apostle Paul. You may know the story, but in Acts chapter 9, Paul, formerly known as Saul, is on the way to Damascus. Why? Because Paul, by definition, was a skeptic. Paul knew the arguments. He knew the stories. He had heard all the hype and the buzz in Jerusalem of this guy named Jesus and, and what people were proclaiming. And Jesus, or uh, Paul rather, he saw all of these followers of Jesus as a fraud. Paul was a skeptic. In fact, he took it to another level and he said, not only am I a skeptic, but I'm tired of these people. And he was actually putting people in prison who believed in Jesus and who were proclaiming the resurrection. Paul the skeptic was the most unlikely of people to vouch for the resurrection. And yet, ironically, he's the one that writes to the Corinthians saying, when I came to you, we delivered to you what we saw of most importance. And that was Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and he was resurrected. Paul, the former skeptic, now convinced that he had seen Jesus after the resurrection, now a follower of Jesus advocating for the resurrection. Even if you don't believe in any of that. If, if you're like, man, I just don't know if I can believe the accounts in the Gospels. I can't believe, I can't take Scripture at face value. I think there's one monumental obstacle that everyone who denies the resurrection will have a hard time answering for. And that's this. Throughout history, no one has been able to account for the empty tomb. You can imagine like the disciples begin to declare publicly that Jesus has been resurrected. How easy would it have been for those Jews who put Jesus to death, who wanted to squash this entire movement? How easy for them would it have been to, hey, you guys are crazy. Look, here's the tomb. Here's the body. Now enough of the nonsense. This is your last warning. But instead they couldn't do that. Why? Because the tomb was empty. It's well documented. It's well accepted even outside of biblical scholarship that there is something that happened that the tomb was empty. Now some scholars would argue that there are other alternate theories to why the tomb was empty. Maybe it was the wrong tomb or there's a theory out there called swoon theory. You can look up the different theories but the idea is this that there was an empty tomb and the empty tomb must be accounted for. And so if the tomb was empty, if people were claiming to be eyewitnesses to Jesus after the resurrection, if people like Paul who went from skeptic, imprisoning, or, uh, killing Christians for believing in Jesus in the resurrection, if all of these three evidences of the eyewitnesses, the changed lives of people like Paul and the empty tomb are taken into account together, it seems very, very likely that Jesus in fact was raised from the dead. Now let's think about that for a moment. What, what does that mean for us? There's good reason, there's good evidence, there is supporting evidence to believe that the resurrection is a valid belief, not just because your grandma taught it to you. But here's the real, here, or here's the takeaway. If the resurrection is true, it necessitates the existence of God. Last week we looked at logical arguments for the existence of God. Here's the reality. If the resurrection is true, it necessitates that God exists. Why? Because it affirms that Jesus was divine, that he was God living in human flesh. Therefore, God exists. So that helps us answer that question if the resurrection is true. But not only does it necessitate God's existence, it also affirms Jesus' authority in everything that he taught. If Jesus could predict his death because he knew what would happen, if, if Jesus could, could claim to be divine and then that could be supported by the resurrection, all of this not only necessitates God's existence, but it affirms Jesus' authority and the truthfulness of everything that he taught. And so here is where it begs the question, what did Jesus teach and are we taking seriously what Jesus taught? 
You see, Jesus taught exclusively that salvation comes only through him, not in this arrogant way, but because he knew that there was only one way to God, and that was the atonement of sin, that sin would be atoned for and paid for, and he knew that only he could fulfill God's plan for salvation. Jesus taught in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You see, if the resurrection is true, it affirms Jesus' authority, and it affirms the exclusivity of his claims that he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. Not only does it affirm God's existence, but it also completely diminishes all the other ideologies and religions in the world, and it points exclusively to Christianity being true. If the resurrection is true, it validates all the claims of Jesus, and it validates Christianity as true, and it just simply begs the question, am I taking seriously what Jesus taught? Am I taking seriously into account the things that the Bible says of the believer or the way of salvation? I appreciate you joining us this week. I hope that you'll stick around and join us either in person or online next week as we continue to look at part three of this series, continuing to answer questions that are fundamental to the Christian faith. But again, our goal is so that you as the believer can be made stronger in your faith, that your confidence can rise, that yes, I have good reason to believe what I believe, and also to equip you to have gospel conversations with the people around you who may believe differently than you. We hope this has been encouraging for you. We hope it's been helpful. We hope to see you back next week.